the other week, I came across something that I consider to be a bit of a rarity. A Todd Friel wretched radio video where Todd Friel actually makes some good points. You may remember the last Todd Friel episode I covered. Todd Friel reminds me how I love Mormonism. And on that one, I thought he struck out quite badly. But in this one, he does an okay job. So props to Todd. And with a title like Ken Ham vs. Matt Walsh, it was like a bear to honey. So the whole idea behind the title is basically Young Earth Creationism versus Old Earth Creationism, with a special focus on how to interpret Genesis in light of the findings of science. So, Ken Ham versus Matt Walsh, who wins? Find out on this episode of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. Hit the intro. Hey there, I'm Joe Hinkle, YouTuber and filmmaker. I'm actually working on my first movie, Two Souls, right now. But, hey, you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you are being inspired by it and having a wonderful day. Thanks so much for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. And keep having fun. I'm Deborah Grace, author of the book Crucifying the Bible, available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. on the internet and then you hear these fateful words chapter one i don't think is intending to teach us that god made the world in six consecutive 24-hour days oh if that doesn't just burn your biscuits nothing can chafe us theologically quite like hearing someone we respect say the creation account is simply poetic or allegorical there are lots of big names who think exactly that. William Lane Craig, Norman Geisler, J.P. Moreland, Hugh Ross, Lee Strobel, and a slew of others. The Bible doesn't insist the earth is young. It says in the beginning God creates the heaven and the earth. It doesn't say what that time that was at. I am not a young earth creationist. I do not believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. I believe that uh, that view is not only scientifically wrong, but I also think it's theologically wrong. I think it, I think it is a misinterpretation, a misreading, a misunderstanding of the text. Todd Friel is a funny one. I absolutely love the phrase, burn your biscuits. I gotta start using that one more. <laughs> that is brilliant. Now, I actually completely agree with Matt Walsh that young earth creationism is scientifically wrong, but, theologically wrong? 
I personally think that the original authors of Genesis intended for the story to be read as taking place over six 24-hour periods. Not because I think that's the best position to make the Bible look ridiculous, but because there are clues later on in the Pentateuch. Alongside that, God rested on the seventh day. He didn't take millions of years to rest, did he? Further to that, do we think the ancient Jews wrote the Genesis account with the idea of enormously long periods of time in between each day? I doubt it. Partly because there isn't even a word for planet in the Bible, let alone knowledge that the earth was round, let alone that the earth revolved around the sun. But somehow the ancient Jews got the correct idea that the whole of creation from the initial Big Bang expansion to the appearance of the first Homo sapiens took billions of years? We also have the saying, and then it was evening and then morning. Billions of years means billions of mornings. So it seems unjustifiable to leave that phrase out in order to push a billions of years narrative. While we cannot read hearts, despite what CRT tells us, I suspect most Christian thinkers who reject a young earth model do it because it's just really hard to reconcile all that science with a young earth position. Correct. When you look at the evidence as neutrally as possible, when you understand how things like geology and radioactive decay and cosmology work, the Christian is backed into a corner. Do they deny the clear findings of science? Or do they implement a personal interpretation of their religious texts to find a way to reconcile fact and faith? Me, personally, I was a young earth creationist up until I studied astronomy for a semester at uni for some easy credits. I then became an old earth and old universe creationist. And that was because the preponderance of evidence available for a big bang and an old universe really does explain a lot of the evidence we see. Things like distant starlight, receding galaxies, and abundance of lighter elements, and more. Just as Darwin had to somehow harmonize creation without a creator, professing Christians feel like they have to find a way to mush together old earth science and a young earth genesis. Unfortunately for them, there's a rather large fly in that ointment. Let's discuss Darwin for a second because his religious views are somewhat misunderstood and used as point scoring by both sides of the theological aisle. So to spell it out, Darwin was a baptised Anglican, attended an Anglican boarding school. He aimed to be a clergyman at one point in his younger years. However, his religious position for much of his life 
was non-conforming Unitarian. It is also true that his voyage around the world in the Beagle shook his faith in the dogma of the Anglican Church. But at no time in his life was he ever a raging atheist a la Richard Dawkins or Aaron Ra. In his own words, In my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a god. I think that generally, and more and more so as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the most correct description of my state of mind. So, at most, he was an agnostic, not an outright atheist. Any attempt to paint him as a god-hater or god-denier are clearly wrong. Furthermore, Darwin was actually, in essence, the Ken Ham of the crew of the Beagle. During these two years, I was led to think much about religion. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox, and I remember being heartily laughed at by several of the officers, though themselves orthodox, for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. So Todd Friggle is right. Darwin did indeed have to reconcile science and faith. Now, onto the general point at hand. Yes, there definitely is a tussle between science and a literal interpretation of Genesis. On one hand, I have to congratulate those who have some cognitive dissonance about this, because it shows that they know some facts about reality are undeniable. But then I also applaud those who wear their theological heart on their sleeve, display their foolishness and say, the world was created in six literal days. I suspect another popular reason for rejecting young Earth is that the age of the Earth is believed to be just not that important. If you want to think the Earth is 6,000 years or 6 million or billion years, what difference does it make? Answer, a lot. Another good point here from Todd. What I would say is that it doesn't matter so much how old you think the Earth is. What matters more is why you think the Earth is as old as you think it is. If you believe the Earth is 6,000 years old, sure, you may have that opinion. But then the next question is why? If your response is that you based your reasoning on Bishop Usher's chronology based on a literal reading of the Bible, or some variant thereof, you then have to be consistent. You then need to believe that the Earth is a flat disk, surrounded by a dome, and set up on pillars. You need to be okay with chattel slavery, you also need to refrain from eating shellfish and bacon, and you also need to be prepared to execute family members who are sexual deviants. Because it's sheer intellectual dishonesty, if not outright hypocrisy, if you just pick and choose what you believe from the Bible. 
If you're going to base your belief around principles laid out specifically in the Bible, you got to go whole hog. But if you say the earth is 6,000 years old because you performed some tests and some analysis and that gave you some preliminary indication of a 6,000-year-old earth, great. Submit your findings to other experts. See if they can recreate your results. See if you did things right and took everything applicable into consideration. Because the crux of the issue here is what you think the best available evidence is and how willing you are to have your belief shaped by things we can empirically and independently verify. Let us endeavor to line up a number of arguments that will hopefully convince you to read Genesis not as poetry and not as allegory, but as real historical narrative. Number one, poetry is a specific genre. The English professor in me is triggered by that pronunciation. But here's the thing. Poetry doesn't always mean a collection of rhyming words in a rhythmic meter. It can include epic stories as well as long, intense narratives. For example, the Aeneid, written by Virgil, is a 12-volume poem. The Odyssey, by Homer, is a 24-volume poem. The only constant definition of a poem are words and sentences that evoke imagery and feeling and can be allegorical, something I think fits the narrative style of Genesis. Of literature that evokes an imaginative picture in our brains, an emotional response using language carefully selected, arranged for meaning and sound and rhythm. This is an example of biblical poetry. The mountains skip like rams, the hills like little lambs. Genesis 1 to 3 doesn't read like poetry. It doesn't read like modern poetry. But you can't say Genesis is not poetry because it doesn't sound like poetry we would write today. I agree that what Todd quoted is reminiscent of biblical metered poetry. But that sort of poetry comes much later in the Old Testament, especially around the time of Moses when he's taking people out of Egypt. There's none of that in Genesis, even though Moses supposedly wrote Genesis. There's also nothing saying you can't have a metered poem inside a larger work of poetry. Now, I personally don't think Genesis is poetry, And I can't say I've heard anyone make a serious case for it being so. So I'm not sure who he's arguing against. Number two, historical narrative. How do we know an author is trying to convey actual history? Well, they use specific details, proper names, accurate descriptions of reality. And that's how Genesis 1 to 3 reads. Here's my counterpoint. Mythical stories can take place in real locations and mention real people. My favourite example of this is Gone with the Wind, which mentions numerous real places, numerous real people, and numerous real events. So why don't we consider Gone with the Wind historical narrative? And I actually go into this a bit more in one of my earliest episodes, The Evidence for Jesus is Gone with the Wind. But... 
Three of the classic markers of myth are improbable events and circumstances, functional names of characters, and structured prose. On the first part, one can easily mention talking snakes, magical fruit that imparts knowledge, a supposedly all-knowing deity that doesn't know where people are, people who suddenly discover they're naked, angels guarding trees with swords, a worldwide flood that requires a thousand times more water than what is on Earth today, and many more improbabilities. On the second part, let's get to functional names. Adam means the ground. Eve means to give life. Cain means gotten, as in Eve saying, I've gotten a son from the Lord. Abel means passing, or something fleeting like a breath. And guess who dies shortly after they're mentioned in the story? You got it, Abel! Then if we go further into Genesis, we see examples such as Abraham meaning father of many, who becomes the father of many. And lucky last, the prose structure. We see in numerous places in Genesis a chiastic structure. In short, you have part A, part B, and part C, and then you have variants of A, B, C, but in CBA structure. So, for example, Genesis 2.4, it mentions heavens, and then earth, and then created. So that's your ABC structure. But then your alternative structure is that after created, you have made, and then you go back to earth, and then you go back to heavens. Or Genesis 3.19, part A is you return, B, to the ground, C, since from it you were taken, then C alternate, for dust you are, B alternate, and to dust, and A alternate, you will return. I'll include a link to a website that lists over 100 examples of chiastic structure in Genesis. So we need to ask what is more likely, that the writers of Genesis were writing a highly allegoric tale using understood notions of literary structure, or that hundreds upon hundreds of events in the ancient world actually took place involving people whose names just happened to coincide with their role in history, and these hundreds of events happened in exactly the reverse order to how they started, and the authors of Genesis just happened to get every detail right? Geographical details, actual names, actual people besides... If Genesis 1 to 3 isn't historical narrative, then how do we know any text in the Bible is factual, including the Gospels? If I didn't know any better, I would say Todd seems to be of the idea that every single piece of fiction takes place in fictional places with fictional people, and it is only historical accounts that take place in real places and mention real people. If this is the case, Todd's ignorance has just ensured the loss of his right to ever talk on this topic again. Because by Todd's definition he just gave, 
Gone with the Wind is an historical document. <laughs> because again, Gone with the Wind mentions real places, real people, and real events. But he does ask a very good question here. If Genesis 1 to 3 isn't historical narrative, then how do we know any text in the Bible is factual? The first question for me is, is it attempting to rewrite a well-known piece of literature? Does it feature characters who have functional names? And is it full of highly unlikely and or absurd events? The second is external corroboration. Do any external sources mention things that tie back to the text in question? And if so, how independent is that text? Thirdly, how neutral is the author? Is the author attempting to deify someone or simply to give a matter-of-fact account and let the facts speak for themselves? And fourth, which hypothesis explains the data better? And I don't mean just the words on the page. I mean also taking into account the historical backdrop, background texts the authors had access to, cultural knowledge, things like that. Because one thing I notice is common in Christian apologetics is that apologists take the Bible as the only text available to gain an historical understanding from and forsake literally anything else written at the time. So when we consider Genesis, we need to take these criteria into consideration. Pre-existing mythology, functional names, improbable events, independent corroboration, and neutrality of authors. Including the Gospels. And it's good how Todd brings up the Gospels here, because the Gospels are a great example of what I'm referring to. For various reasons, the Gospels aren't independent, have very little external corroboration of anything not already known by historians, have characters whose names indicate their role in the story, and are written to pre-existing believers to bolster their faith at a time when the world was full of cults that worshipped dying and rising demigods. Number three, a yom is a yom. Some Christians who reject a young earth position argue that the Genesis creation account is just a very long amount of time, maybe millions or billions of years per day. Is that interpretation faithful to the text and Hebrew grammar? That would be a big negatory, my trucker friend. Moses uses numbers to describe each passing day on the first day, on the second day. He uses language to describe morning and evening of each day. You have to have a fair amount of imagination to overcome the Hebrew word for day, yom, which means yom. Now, I will vehemently disagree with Moses being the author of Genesis. And while I do generally agree with Todd on this point, I wish he would explain the case a little bit more. The word yom is one of those context-based words, a bit like the words run or switch or hide. They have multiple meanings in English depending on the context that you're using them in. So while a yom can definitely mean a literal 24-hour day, it can also mean a general period of time. Now, we see this in Genesis itself. 
The root word yom gets used to mean a general time period in Genesis 4.3, over the course of time, or Genesis 5.4, then the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth, or Genesis 29.14, where it talks about the month's time span that Jacob stayed with Laban. So a yom isn't simply a yom. However, I will side with Todd here. I believe the authors of Genesis were trying to convey the idea of the world being created in six literal days, especially when you have the phrase, then it was evening, then it was morning. Number four. If we evolved, then what do we do with Adam? Romans 5 says that through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. What do we do about Adam, sin, and death? Do what I do. Read Genesis as an etiological myth written by people who were establishing religious practices within a primitive society who didn't know anything about the world that extended beyond their immediate subcontinent. In Adam, if death weren't present in the world before Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, There's no possibility for the life, the death, and natural selection of creatures before the fall. Some old earthers and theistic evolutionists, they would say Adam and Eve were simply the product of millions, millions, and millions of years of evolution prior to the story of them in the garden. There's just one big problem. There are more, but let's focus on one. If we believe, Paul, that death entered when sin did There can't be millions of years of evolution because that requires lots of death. Evolution doesn't necessarily require beings to die. It is possible for organisms to replicate and compete for resources without dying. In fact, we have millions and millions and millions of species of self-replicating organisms around us today that coexist just fine. In fact, if there was no death, Earth would eventually be overrun by a never-ending supply of vegetarian lions. And this is part of an episode I'm writing for later on, so hang tight. But to say that evolution is bad or wrong because it is focused on death is itself both bad and wrong. Evolution is simply genetic diversity and population mechanics. If death itself is so bad to the point that it makes evolution unfathomable, then why worship a god that foreknew that every single one of his precious and beloved people would die? Adam and Eve were unique creations, not the product of evolution. I agree. Adam and Eve were not the product of evolution because they never existed. They're an etiological myth. And let me put it to you like this. If we can detect a genetic bottleneck in the African cheetah from 12,000 years ago, but can't find evidence of two genetic bottleneck events in humans, either Adam and Eve or from Noah's flood from 6,000 years ago, something is up. Number five, if Genesis 1 to 3 is poetry, then you've been getting ripped off. 
on the Sabbath, if you're only celebrating it for 24-hour days, and God potentially rested for millions of years, contact your boss and tell him or her that you will not be in the office until, mm, give or take, 700,042,000 A.D., the Sabbath was an actual day of actual rest, and that is why we only take 24 hours off. This is a great point by Todd. However, I have seen apologetics by people like Gerard Schroeder that essentially says there are two forms of time in the Bible. Before man, time was essentially dilated, and then when man is created, Time now goes along at the speed that we experience it. Clever, if not wildly imaginative. The question I would have here, though, is, are we actually still bound to the Sabbath? Because in the Old Testament, God declared at least three times that Sabbath violation is a capital crime. But then in the New Testament, we are apparently no longer bound to the Old Testament law and that we are to let no one judge us by how we observe the Sabbath. I agree that a day of rest is awesome, but is it still a theological crime to violate it? I get it. I really, really do. The pressure to not look foolish because science says the earth is old. You are a Neanderthal if there were such things, for believing the earth is young. But that's what Genesis 1 to 3 teaches. And if that makes us look like fools, then so be it. That's part of it. And I'm glad that you're wearing your theological heart on your sleeve. Excellent. But I think if you are a biblically literal young earth creationist, you need to ask yourself some hard questions. Is the only reason you believe the earth is young is because it says in Genesis? If so, this is nothing more than an argument from authority. What scientific discoveries have we found that independently corroborate or point to a 6,000-year-old earth? And I'm not just talking about contrived anomalies in radiometric dating. I'm talking about evidence that builds up a positive case for a 6,000-year-old Earth. The next question I have is, will you reject everything that modern science has discovered and brought us? Things like medicine, travel, electronics, engineering, resources? Or are you picking and choosing? Like, if a doctor suggested medicine for a stomach ulcer, would you turn around and say, no, the Bible says wine is the best for stomach ailments? If police use genetics and forensic science to solve a cold case, would you be willing to stand up in the courtroom and go, that's wrong because you weren't there? And the last and maybe the most important question, is there anything that would make you change your mind? As for who won between Ken Ham and Matt Walsh, it's a double count out. Sorry.